a large extent on the the ways in which a, a, a denial of sola scriptura is uh, re- reflects a kind of a Camelot view of history. Uh, there is a tendency, at least among many, who convert to orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism from evangelical and reformed backgrounds to overestimate the continuity of tradition. And so it's always helpful to actually look at the history. And it's interesting, Roman Catholic and Orthodox historians are very happy to talk about the history in in fairly uh, honest terms, but it doesn't always fit with the press release. It doesn't always fit with what you get as the uh, pitch for becoming Orthodox or Roman Catholic when you're talking especially to people who have converted uh, from uh, Protestant traditions. And uh, so I talked about uh, defining sola scriptura, the importance of defining not only what it is, but what it isn't. Sola scriptura is not. The scripture alone, apart from creeds and confessions, apart from church courts, apart from synods, uh, uh, apart from tradition, but rather scripture as unique over all of those subordinate authorities because whatever the church decides, whatever the church arrives at, has to be justified by scripture. And so I went through uh, uh, the, the justification for sola scriptura from scripture itself. A lot of people say that it's not uh, a doctrine that is taught in Scripture. Isn't it ironic that, uh, that the idea of Scripture alone isn't taught in Scripture alone? And uh, I challenged that, particularly with Jesus' own distinction between uh, the uh, Scriptures and the tradition of the elders. Tradition of the elders wasn't evil. It wasn't just by definition wrong, as many of us grew up being taught. That tradition is just by definition wrong, not just subordinate to Scripture, but likely to take you away from Scripture. Uh, no, but Jesus did upbraid the religious leaders of his day for subordinating Scripture or setting Scripture aside, he says, to obey the teachings of men. So uh, again and again, there's a distinction made between the foundation-laying era of the apostles and then the... Uh, era following the apostles, which is the the ordinary minister like Timothy. Paul himself speaks of being given an embassy from Jesus Christ personally, directly. But he tells Timothy, hold on to that gift that you were given when the presbytery laid its hands on you. Actually, I think he meant classes. But uh, uh, presbytery classes mean exactly the same thing. Uh, when they laid hands on you. Remember, remember the gift that you were given then. It is through the church, not directly by Christ, but indirectly by Christ through the church now that ministers are called. There are no apostles or successors to the apostles. Uh, pastors today, ministers today, are not successors of the apostles. There is no apostolic office. It died with the last apostle. Now we have apostolic scripture called the New Testament. That is the rule and norm for all preaching and teaching and discipline and worship and so forth. 
And so there's a qualitative difference between the foundation-laying era of the apostles and the building era that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. Some build on, on uh, uh, the proper foundation with the proper materials, and others don't. And the last day will test what kind of ministry people were, were building. No other foundation can be laid than the one which is laid, namely Christ. The church is founded on the, 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 the prophets and the apostles with Jesus as the cornerstone. And then we talked about the uh, history of church teaching on the subject. Does, does uh, Scripture teach sola scriptura? Yes, it does. Qualitative difference between Scripture and tradition. Does the ancient church teach a qualitative distinction between Scripture and tradition and subordinate the latter to the former? And uh, I argued at great length, at both at the conference and then last week, that that was, uh, that was the case, quote after quote after quote. And I might just add, not primary quotes, but uh, uh, experts summarizing the church fathers on this question, uh, a couple of quotes that I haven't uh, mentioned yet. Ellen Flessman Van Leer says, For Tertullian, the second century, Scripture is the only means for refuting or validating a doctrine as regards its content. For Irenaeus, second century, the church doctrine is certainly never purely traditional. On the contrary, the thought that there could be some truth transmitted exclusively via voce, orally, is a Gnostic line of thought. If Irenaeus wants to prove the truth of a doctrine materially, he always turns to Scripture, because therein the teaching of the apostles is objectively accessible. Proof from tradition and Scripture serve one and the same kind, to identify the teaching of the church as the original apostolic teaching. The first establishes that the teaching of the church is this apostolic teaching, and the second, what this apostolic teaching is. Very different from the later development, uh, especially in the Church of Rome, where the apostolic preaching is whatever you hear in the Roman Catholic Church. Not where there's an apostolic teaching that measures whether a church is truly one holy Catholic and apostolic. Uh, also, uh, J.N.D. Kelly, uh, specialist in, in uh, uh, patristics, says, the clearest token of the prestige enjoyed by Scripture is the fact that almost the entire theological effort of the fathers, whether their aims were polemical or constructive, was expended upon what amounted to an exposition of Scripture. Further, it was everywhere taken for granted that for any doctrine to win acceptance, it had to first establish its scriptural basis. And that's so true. Even, even with wacky exegesis, uh, where you just you wonder what on earth were they thinking when they wrote that down. Uh, very strange interpretations. They still were appealing to Scripture in a way that was qualitatively different from appealing to, uh, to other authorities. And it also kind of makes sense, right? Because there's, it's, hard, it's hard for the church fathers to follow the tradition of the church fathers. You know, uh, at some point, they, uh, 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 enough centuries were between the, 
the apostolic era and office and the, the post-apostolic church uh, for people to be able to talk about the church fathers. But the church fathers I've been quoting, I've been referring to, turned to scripture, uh, there wasn't even time to, uh, to, for tradition to develop a priority over scripture. Uh, right from the beginning, scripture was seen as qualitatively distinct and superior to and the judge of all uh, interpretations. Okay, so with defining sola scriptura, does scripture teach sola scriptura? Does the ancient teach sola scriptura? And here I want to offer a concluding appeal, and I'm especially thinking about the sorts of things that we run into when we meet Roman Catholic and Orthodox friends who have wonderful uh, um, uh, persuasive arguments for why they have become Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. A lot of times it's because, you know, you, you hear them tell, tell you why they left. Uh, one of the reasons is because they, they came to believe that sola scriptura doesn't work because there are so many different denominations, so many interpretations. And we saw last week what uh, John Chrysostom, the patriarch of Constantinople, said about that. Well, there's no way to, to judge that except by Scripture, said Chrysostom. Uh, and uh, uh, I want to focus the, the, the remaining time today on uh, two other points that uh, you may find helpful when you're thinking about conversations with Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox folks, that I just don't think a lot of converts from Protestantism have taken seriously when they convert. Uh, the first point uh, is, uh, uh, comprehends both Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy. The second will focus more on Orthodoxy. But both argue that representations of God, including the incarnate Son, are validated by the ancient church's tradition of venerating icons. I'm not focusing on this. I'm using this as an example of how tradition has not been continuous. I've already talked about uh, a non-continuous papacy, quote-unquote, uh, in the West. Uh, and here I'm focusing particularly on radically different views of worship and the sufficiency of Scripture. The early church, the ancient church, believed in what the Reformed called the regulative principle. You... you you not only uh, uh, can't do something that Scripture forbids, you can't require anything for worship and practice and doctrines that, that cannot be uh, defended from Scripture. And that's very different, not only from Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox, uh, but Lutheran, Anglican, and many evangelical uh, churches would dis dis disagree with the regulative principle. They will say, well, there, I think Scripture forbids bowing down to statues. I'm pretty sure Scripture forbids that. But I'm not sure about icons. Uh, or I'm not sure that it would be wrong to have uh, a uh, Passion of the Christ play at Easter in the church. Um, I, I, don't, I, I think those are fine uh, I don't think that that breaks any of God's commands. 
Well, the point is that you, you not only can't do in worship, public worship, whatever uh, is condemned by Scripture, but you also can't add stuff, which is what the church did uh, uh, right you know, from, the, from about the 4th, 5th centuries on uh, all the way through to the late Middle Ages with increasing uh, uh, acceleration through the Middle Ages. And so uh, it, it wasn't this way in the beginning. Uh, in the second century, Irenaeus complained that the Gnostics made painted images of Christ. It was the Gnostics, the, the heretical group that, that uh, denied that God had really come in the flesh. I, I point this out because it's interesting. Uh, there's nobody perhaps more venerated as a theologian in Eastern Orthodoxy than Irenaeus, maybe Athanasius. Uh, and, and the argument that later was made for icons was that, yes, before Jesus became incarnate, it was wrong to have any representation of God, but because now he has become flesh, and you could have taken a picture of him if you had a camera, we can make icons. That was the, the argument that developed, so to speak, with the camera analogy. And Irenaeus is saying, no, that's actually what the Gnostics were doing. Uh, the Gnostics were, were, were certainly not incarnational. They certainly didn't believe that it was on the basis of the incarnation, the full enfleshment of God in Christ, that we can represent him. Rather, it is uh, uh, precisely for the opposite reason that he didn't actually assume our flesh so we can make any human representation we want. The different theological justification for it, but the, the conclusion uh, is the same. Justin Martyr rejected visual images in favor of instruction from God's word. In fact, our statement in the Heidelberg Catechism, God does not wish to be taught by dumb idols that cannot speak, but by the lively preaching of the word of God comes right out of Justin Martyr. His statement on the, uh, on the subject was virtually identical to that. Lactantius, in the third century, concluded, there is no true religion wherever there is a statue or image in the church. This was standard teaching in the, Roman, in the, in the Western church and in the Eastern church. Um, all, all the way to the third century. Or how about all the way to the, the uh, uh, time of Augustine, uh, late fourth, early fifth century. It is sinful to set up an image of God in a Christian temple. It is sinful to set up an image of God in a Christian temple. Augustine. I mean, this isn't a crank, kind of on the sidelines, uh, uh, waiting for the day when John Calvin will be born. Um, it is sinful to set up an image in a Christian temple. And, you know, it just sounds kind of matter-of-fact. No. According to the 4th century Council of Elvira in the West, and this is included in the Catholic Encyclopedia as one of the councils of the, of the Catholic Church, 4th century, it is decreed that there shall be no pictures in churches and that what is reverenced or adored 
be never depicted on the walls. As late as 754 in the East, the Council of Hera uh, condemned, quote, the unlawful art of painting images of Christ, which blasphemes the fundamental doctrine of our salvation, namely the incarnation of Christ. Now, wait a second. That will be the argument I was just saying a little bit earlier that will be used for justifying icons in the church. The word became flesh. So why can't he be infleshed all over our walls? Ironically, the, the, the earlier council said no. No. All of you who want images or icons all over the churches, no, stop, stop, stop. It violates the very heart of our faith, the incarnation. Now, why would, why would they make that argument if the, if the same doctrine, the incarnation, was appealed to on the iconodual side, the, the, the adoration of icons? Well, the major reason was that the early councils had bled over the union of two natures in one person. The human nature assumed by the divine nature. The Logos, the eternal Son of God, assumed our humanity. He didn't assume a particular human being. He assumed our generic human nature and was made a man. There is no Jesus Christ apart from the eternal Son of God assuming flesh. And because of this, he's united in one person. You can't say, well, we're not representing his deity, which is forbidden by the second commandment. No graven images. We're just representing his humanity. Because then the question comes up, who is the human Jesus? God. There was a big debate over this, whether you could call Mary the mother of God. The bishop of Antioch said, no, no, we're not going to use that kind of language. That gives Mary too high a status. Uh, you have to distinguish between the two natures of Christ. And he went so far that he separated the two natures of Christ. Mary is the mother of Jesus, not of God, the Son. And then the Orthodox came back and said, then to whom did she give birth? Jesus or God? Heresy. It's called Nestorianism. We bled over this, the Orthodox are saying. What, what on earth are we going to... What business do we have now of making arguments based on Nestorianism that you can... It's fine to depict the humanity of Jesus separated from his deity. And the argument of the ancient church and of the Reformed in the 16th century was that you cannot represent... Jesus Christ, because he is God incarnate. And you can't separate his divinity from his humanity. According to the council summary, 754, the Council of Heria, quote, supported by the Holy Scriptures and the Fathers, we declare unanimously in the name of the Holy Trinity that there shall be rejected and removed and cursed one of the Christian church... Uh, 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 every likeness, there shall be a curse on, uh, on every Christian church 
where there is a likeness made out of any material and color, if anyone ventures to represent the divine image of the Word after the Incarnation, after Jesus, the Son, after His Incarnation, with material colors, let him be anathema. If anyone shall endeavor to represent the forms of the saints in lifeless pictures with material colors, which are of no value, for this notion is vain and introduced by the devil, and does not rather represent their virtues as living in images in himself, let him be anathema. And then Empress Irene... Yes, I don't want to just pass over questions if you have them or comments. Great, yeah, great question. Um, the, 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 the question is a difference between, uh, I mean, we have, we have uh, in Israel there were carved icons. Uh, here we have a carved icon. Uh, I think there's a difference between a symbol of our faith and representing heavenly beings. Uh, if you look at Calvin, the way he argues, the, uh, puts the argument, uh, he says, uh, uh, I'm not uh, supersti- so superstitious that I would suggest that all painting and sculpture be banned. Uh, all I'm saying is you can only represent that which the physical eyes can see. Because you're speculating about what your, what your spiritual eyes can see in the heavenlies. You've never seen an angel, don't depict one. You've never seen Jesus. Don't depict him. You've never seen God the Father. And the East has always said, number one, you can't have a statue three-dimensional. That's idolatry. Because it says no graven image. (laughs) You can have a really flat one, but not multidimensional. And then the second thing is uh, that you uh, you can't represent God the Father. Now, there again... Uh, when that argument was made in the ancient church, uh, the ancient fathers said, well, why would you be able not to represent God the Father, but you could represent God the Son? You're representing a person of the Godhead. And their answer is, well, he's the one who became flesh. That's when the, the question of Nestorianism came up. But, but Calvin would not have had a problem, for example, if this whole church were painted with biblical scenes. No problem at all. As long as A... The Holy Trinity wasn't represented in them, in them, or angels, things in the higher uh, uh, realms. And we have a wonderful Bible that actually, where, where almost everything in it happened on earth. <laughs> there are lots of scenes that don't violate what uh, Calvin was talking about there. Um, and then, then secondly, that we don't see them as substitutes for the lively preaching of God's word. We're not using them as the books for the unlearned. Uh, so those are the two, the two cautions. But I think there's a danger in some Reformed circles of thinking if we have any ornamentation in the church whatsoever, that is, uh, that's idolatry, and I think that's just kind of an overreaction. So they're, they're, you know, I think those are good parameters. Calvin gave us good parameters there. Yeah. 
Yeah, Cal- Calvin um, at St. Peter's, uh, Calvin allowed the cross to stay up there, and then one one day a uh, uh, thunderstorm came and uh, hit the cross and destroyed it. And Calvin just said, uh, hmm, I didn't think I'm going to be rebuilding it. <laughs> uh, the lightning might get closer to him. So, uh, but I, I, do, I, yeah, I think Dr. Godfrey made this point when he was here at the conference that it's different from a representation of, um, of the Godhead. The cross doesn't, nobody pretends the cross is representing uh, a person of the Trinity. Yes, and, and Eusebius of Caesarea, the first church historian, was the first, and you'll hear this with Orthodox folks, they will always appeal to Eusebius's ecclesiastical history to justify icons, that it was always done in the church. Well, I mean, we've seen, there are all sorts of quotes and councils that show that it wasn't. But Eusebius, in many ways, tried to rewrite church history to serve post-triumph of icons ideology, and, and for that matter, also semi-Arianism. Um, so, uh, yeah, Eusebius is not exactly the best source on some of these questions. Heavenly, heavenly beings... Basically, whatever the eye can see, and this is why a number of art historians have said uh, wherever Calvinism went, landscape painting, uh, uh, I mean, not just reduced to one factor, but but it's not surprising that wherever Calvinism flourished, uh, combined with, you know, Renaissance interest in this world, there was uh, a focus on nature and natural subjects um, because they were forbidden by their Reformed churches to uh, make any representation of heavenly things. That was a really interesting uh, way of kind of delimiting things, and a lot of Reformed people agreed with Calvin's delineation there that uh, you can have, you can have uh, 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 you know, this is the line in the sand. You can't have any representation of the Trinity, and you can't have any representation of anything that your eyes, physical eyes, haven't actually seen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, right. I was always taught that it's because we believe in the resurrection. Well, of course, Roman Catholics uh, believe in the resurrection, and Eastern Orthodox believe in the resurrection. The, the real reason for us, we can't have a rep, uh, any representation of Christ. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And what happens when we make representations of Christ? It becomes part of the worship, and we bow down to it, and we adore something that has no resemblance, or we don't, we can't decipher whether it has any resemblance to to God at all. The Eastern Orthodox officially condemn, specifically, uh, one Eastern Orthodox writer I was reading uh, recently, 
condemns the Sistine Chapel because it has a representation of God the Father, several representations of God the Father in it. All right, I'm going to make some people frustrated probably if I don't uh, uh, quit right now. And uh, uh, other things that we could we can talk about. What's interesting is that later, finally, uh, it was uh, emperors, later emperors, who insisted on uh, icon veneration, always venerating them, not worshiping. Um, but boy, when they you know kiss them and light things to them and do all kinds of, it's really hard to make that d- distinction stick in a lot of average people's minds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word that we uh, have as a, a guide not only to, to doctrine but to practice, that practice being rooted in the doctrine. We pray that we would uh, not only uh, give ear to that which is forbidden, but that we would restrict uh, that which we count as pure doctrine and practice to that which you've commanded. Uh, Thank you for freeing us from the imaginations of men. Thank you for for freeing us from the whims and uh, and the power drives uh, of men, even churchmen. Thank you for for, uh, making us servants of your word and therefore servants of your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.